Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, thank you this morning. We pray, come, Holy Spirit, come. Come now, Lord, and fill this space. Fill your scriptures, fill my words, fill our hearts and our minds that we might be led to Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. But we are in the midst of our preaching series called Living Lent. Living Lent, because we want this six-week season of Lent to be filled with life and not what can sometimes happen is things get hazy with religious fog. But we want it to live. We want it to breathe. We want it to move. We want it to engage us. And so during these six weeks, as we move toward Easter, toward Jesus's cross and toward Jesus's resurrection, we're following his journey. And we're looking at how he engages the spiritual life so that we might engage our spiritual lives like he does. Today, I want to start by asking you a question. What is your Jesus like? What is your Jesus like? Now, before you answer that internally, I want to tell you what what I'm worried he might be like. What concerns me is that you might have an idea of Jesus that doesn't correspond with the real Jesus, the Jesus who is still alive today and who can be both known and experienced and is worthy of your life and worthy of your love, worthy of your everything. My worry is that instead, you might actually have an idea of Jesus that has, as John Eldridge writes in his book, Beautiful Outlaw, been vandalized by religion and by the world. This vandalized Jesus is a shadow It's a mirage. It's a hologram. It looks like the real thing, but it isn't. It fits too neatly with Sunday school and America, with baby lambs and apple pie. This hologram will pat you on the head like a grandpa and always gently affirms a suburban lifestyle promising a ticket to heaven or at least a fire insurance policy for the future. What comes to mind when you think about Jesus? Is he near or is he far? Is he uptight or does he have a great sense of humor? Is he ghostly and otherworldly or very human? Is he dutiful and religious or powerful and free? Is he only gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Or does he move with strength and passion and intentionality, fierceness even, to right what is wrong in the world, in our lives, in his church, to set captives free? Is your Jesus consumed with zeal or simply a cardboard cutout? 
Well, as we look at the gospel today from John chapter 2, we're told that Jesus showed up at the Passover, at the temple in Jerusalem. Passover being the most important festival for the Jewish people. An annual celebration looking back at God's deliverance, his rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt, his miraculous escape for his people from what they couldn't get out of on their own. And hundreds of thousands, yes, that many, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from all around Israel and the world descended upon Jerusalem to make sacrifices to God, to atone for their sin. What Jesus found when he got there was not awestruck, wonder-filled worshipers. He found lethargic people. He found the sights and the smells, the sounds of a marketplace filled with animals and loan sharks. There were sheep, there were oxen, there were pigeons in the temple, rightly intended for sacrifice, necessary for the worship of God's people. But they were absolutely in the wrong place. They were likely in the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court. But they were supposed to be outside of the temple, not in it. They were supposed to be near the temple, not not inside of it. And sitting there were the people selling the animals. Can you envision them arguing, gossiping, bickering, talking shop, hawking their wares, trying to outbid or undersell their competitors across the way, profiting from the needs of God's people? There are also the money changers with their tables stacked high with coins. They were necessary. They they were absolutely necessary because the annual temple tax of one half a Jewish shekel had to be paid with the Jewish shekel. And with people coming in from all parts of the world, they had all kinds of coins with them that had to be exchanged. Those coins, by the way, like like the currency of the world today, had leaders' faces on it. Rulers, emperors, sometimes false gods, and those images were not allowed in the temple. They had to be exchanged. But they were in the temple, along with these money changers who charged exorbitant interest. Now, if you've ever exchanged currency in an airport in a foreign nation, you know that proximity and convenience up the exchange rate. And so it was there in the temple. The prices were exorbitant. The fees, the interest, they were making a lot of money on God's worshiping people. Well, how does Jesus respond? He makes a whip from rope and he causes a stampede. He drives the animals Out of their pens, he kicks the profiteers out. He knocks over the table, sending the coins across the stone pavement, clinking and clanging, rolling into every crack and crevice. Can you see the mayhem and the chaos as the money changers are diving for their coins? 
as the cows are being run out of the place. Noisy. It's audacious. It's disruptive. It's disturbing. It's pandemonium. This is not the Jesus you put on the wall of your baby's nursery. This is more like Indiana Jones cracking his bullwhip. But it's not an out-of-control fury. This is not the anger like that of an abusive husband or the rage of a drunken father or the withering barrage of a demanding and critical mother. You know this because of the little detail that John gives us about the birds. Right? The sheep and the cattle are in their pens, but the birds are in little cages. Jesus didn't kick over the birds in their cages. If he had, they would have been hurt, harmed. He says this in verse 16. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things out of here. Take them away. See, Jesus never hurts or harms the innocent and the helpless. That's an important word, especially if you've come out of abuse. He never harms the helpless. He never harms those who are innocent. And then it comes a big reveal. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't make it a shopping mall. Don't make it a retail outlet. Notice he doesn't say the temple. He doesn't say, don't make the temple a shopping mall. He doesn't say our worship facility, our building. He doesn't even say our father's house. He says, my father's house. Much more specific. Which is a way of him saying, my house. My temple. My worship facility. Remember when he was 12? You get it at the end of Luke 2. When his family has gone for the Passover and he's gotten lost, or they've gotten lost, I think is probably the right answer. They've left him behind thinking he's with the relatives and they come back to Jerusalem searching for him everywhere. They find him in the temple and the religious scholars and the teachers are all around him. And they are amazed, the text tells us, by the things that he is answering. This is 12-year-old Jesus. And Joseph and Mary say, why have you done this to us? And his response is, didn't you know I would have to be in my father's house? My father's house. Remember his baptism as the father speaks over him, the spirit coming upon him in power, the dove resting and remaining upon him. The father saying, this is my beloved, my son, with whom I am completely, totally and well pleased. There's nothing between us. He's my son. That's my boy. This is my child. There's an absolute uniqueness about Jesus. He's not just another religious figure, another holy person, another prophet or wise man, somebody who's got a little more spark of the divine in him than perhaps you or I. But what John tells us at the end of his gospel in chapter 20 is that Jesus did many other signs that aren't written in this book, but these are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in his name. He is uniquely the Son of God, who is adamant about his Father's house and the purpose for which he came to offer his life as the everlasting and eternal Lamb of God for the sacrifice necessary for sin once for all, to restore relationship for you and me and the world to God. Then you get the amazing statement in verse 17. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, zeal is a Bible word. It's a word that's used to describe a fervent devotion to God, a commitment to upholding God's righteousness, his right ways, his righteous character. And the root of the word comes from the word to boil. Zeal is a bubbling, boiling cauldron, if you will. It's got energy. It's got power. If you're not careful, it could burn you. It's a good description of the passion involved with zeal. Right? Zeal is what carries a Christian the extra step when everybody else is taking the easy road. When others are quitting, zeal is what keeps a person moving forward. It moves you to action when everyone else is afraid. It's what keeps your focus on the things that are most important in life rather than getting distracted by the things that seem so shiny and close that everyone else is running after. Zeal is not a word you hear in the suburbs very often. And we all live in the suburbs. Unless you hear it negatively, like that guy's a little overzealous. He takes his faith too seriously. She's too intent on the Bible. He's too much about the Holy Spirit. You know that family that goes to church every Sunday? Probably the closest word that we have to zeal in our culture is passion. That's about as close as we get. That's a word you hear. Now, what's amazing in America is that it's okay to be about passion and about anything and everything except for God. You can be passionate about movies, soccer, your sports team, your college, your politics, your fashion, your clothes, your music, house, your boat, your lifestyle. But you cannot be zealous, passionate about God. That's the big no-no, especially in the suburbs. You go to a concert. If you go to a football game and you shout yourself hoarse, people will say you're a real fan. But if you did that here in church, they'd call you a fanatic. (laughs) Shape your life around anything else. People say you're passionate. They'll applaud you. But if you shape your life and your family around your church, around Jesus, around your life group, around serving others, they'll say, well, maybe... Maybe you're a little out there, a little dangerous. You don't have to be weird, by the way, to be zealous. You just have to know the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
a relationship with God. But if you do this, they'll tell you, and I guarantee it, you'll hear it or they'll whisper it because we're in the South. Tone it down just a little bit. But we go back to the text. The religious types question Jesus, right? Zeal for his father's house is consuming him. They question him saying, what sign are you going to show us? In other words, what right do you have to do this? By what authority are you doing this thing? What does he say? He says, okay, how about the resurrection? He doesn't say it quite like that. He says, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it again. And they're looking around at the formidable stones and they're going, this guy's nuts. It took 46 years to build this place. You're going to tear it down and raise it back up in three days? But he was talking about the resurrection. He was talking about his death as the sacrifice once and for all for sin. The offering made to the Father to open the way to relationship and then his resurrection from the dead. The sign you want? Okay, how about resurrection? If, if you ever look at the book of Acts, and, and it, it's a helpful little study, go look through the book of Acts and see how many times it talks about the cross of Jesus and how many times in their preaching particularly they talk about the lordship of Jesus, the aliveness of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's like almost 100 to 1. The resurrection is what predominantly is spoken about in the early church. The cross is very important, by the way. But you can have a Jesus on a cross who never was raised from the dead. And that's not the real Jesus. He's alive. You want a sign? Okay, I'll just die and come back to life again. How about that for a sign? I am the Lord. I am the God Almighty. I am the one who this house is all about. How about that? The one worthy of worship, worthy of your life, worthy of your praise. And the only one, by the way, according to Jesus, who is worthy of your life, worthy of your worship, worthy of your praise. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's zeal. That's what we say in that first commandment every week. It's describing zeal. All of who you are. Why? Why be zealous for him? Because he was so zealous for you. So zealous to fulfill the Father's plan. Looking down through time and space and history, so zealous for you that he went to the cross and was raised from death. For the joy set before him, he endures the cross, scorning its shame, and now he has been raised to the highest place for you and for me and for the Father. You know what the worst sin is for a Christian? It's not adultery. It's not murder. It's not some sort of sexual perversion. Those aren't good things. But God tells us in Revelation chapter 3, it's lukewarmness. Jesus says, be hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm. Don't be watered down. Don't get caught up in the mirage. Don't get lost in the culture and forget the zeal of your heart for me. Remember what you did in the beginning and repent and come back to your first love. 
And after a year of being in our houses and away from one another and behind these masks and these shields, it is so easy not to have zeal for the Lord. He says, repent, come back to your first love. Notice he gauges it in love, not in responsibility, not even in obedience, but in love, in the I get to for God because he's alive, not the I have to because I'm afraid of punishment. C.S. Lewis said it like this. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Moderately important. If he wasn't raised from the dead, go do something else. But if he's alive, then the invitation is to live in zeal, in love, with intimacy, with the nearness of the God who loves you and has broken down every barrier to make you his. That's where Lent is so helpful, I think. Because if we're living our Lenten season and not just going through the religious haze, we use this time to allow God to surface the things that are the mirage, that cause our our view to not be direct, but kind of off to the side somewhere. The sort of ADD, ADHD of our lives when it comes to Jesus. And so the invitation for you and for me, as we fast, as we pray, as we read the scriptures, as we worship, is that we would invite the spirit of the living God, the real Jesus, to show us the things that would cloud our view and cause us to lose sight. Our hearts wander away so that he might restore us and renew us. think about, again, something from C.S. Lewis. Probably you all know it. You've read it to your children. Your children probably have read it. My kids probably read it a million times. Comes from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the children are in the house of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they find out that Aslan, the Christ figure, is a lion. Their first question is, is he safe? No, he's not safe. In fact, your knees ought to be knocking in his presence. He's not safe at all, but he is good. Good. He is good. And he loves you. Let's pray. The Lord, deliver us from the things that so easily capture our attention. From the bitterness and the judgment towards others from the lack of zeal that's so in the culture around us. And renew our hearts that we might walk as you've created us to walk. Not being something we're not. Not just being emotional, but being fervent for you. Whether we're introverts or extroverts, it's not about that, Lord. It's about walking with you, passionate for you zeal for you and for the world around us that's dying apart from you. Lord, for the sake of Jesus, who after three days was raised, 
and is alive. Do a work in us this Lent, we pray. Amen.